This is what he showed me. Behold, the Lord was standing beside a wall built with a plumb line, with a plumb line in his hand. And the Lord said to me, Amos, what do you see? And I said, a plumb line. Then behold, the Lord said, Behold, I am setting a plumb line in the midst of my people Israel. I will never again pass by them. The high places of Isaac shall be made desolate, and the sanctuaries of Israel shall be laid waste. And I will rise against the house of Jeroboam with the sword. Then Amaziah, the priest of Bethel, sent to Jeroboam, king of Israel, saying, Amos has conspired against you in the midst of the house of Israel. The land is not able to, to bear all his words. For thus Amos has said, Jeroboam shall die by the sword, and Israel must go into exile away from his land. And Amaziah said to Amos, O seer, go, flee away to the land of Judah, and eat bread there, and prophesy there, but never again prophesy at Bethel, for it is the king's sanctuary, and it is a temple of the kingdom. Then Amos answered and said to Amaziah, I was no prophet, nor a prophet's son, but I was a herdsman and a dresser of the sycamore figs. But the Lord took me from following the flock, and the Lord said to me, Go, prophesy to my people Israel. Now therefore hear the word of the Lord. You say, Do not prophesy against Israel, and do not preach against the house of Isaac. Therefore thus says the Lord, thus says the Lord Your wife shall be a prostitute in the city, and your sons and your daughters shall fall by the sword. And your land shall be divided up with a measuring line. You yourself shall die in an unclean land. And Israel shall surely go into exile away from its land. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. <coughs> Mackenzie wanted me to let everybody know that that... Uh, a uh, new masterpiece she just did will be available at next year's silent auction fundraiser uh, if you are interested. Uh, today, a delightful little passage about a plumb line and a conversation between Amaziah and Amos. How can we approach it? And let's approach it with a question. Why is it so hard to change? Why has change come so difficult to us? And why is it so rare? Not a little bit of change, but real life transformation. On the one hand, uh, change can seem simple and obvious and yet impossible at the same time. You want to lose weight? Just jump in the gym. Easy breezy, right? That's it. That's all you got to do. Change is marketed to us. It's offered to us in all sorts of different ways. And it makes it sound like it's just easily obtainable. And yet, how much change have you experienced in your life? And we also have to recognize that the reason we're here is it not because of the idea of change. And we're not here because we believe in a gospel of change, a gospel that says uh, there's a possibility of death to life kind of change. We believe in a gospel that offers radical transformation, and so what has your experience of that been? And we live in a, a, a time of year in which just change is very much on the mind of American culture, 
Uh, and I didn't re- realize how much it was until I saw some statistics this, this week that said at least 40% of Americans are estimated to engage in some form of New Year's resolution. And for perspective, uh, 30% watch the Super Bowl. So 40% of Americans engage in some commitment to change in the new year. <laughs> and yet, uh, uh, but, but studies have shown that by the second week of February, 80% of all New Year's resolutions have already ended in failure. Just abandoned on the side of the road and just ended. Better luck next year. Maybe then it'll be different. I don't know why I think that's funny, but 80% of people just utterly fail within six weeks. I mean, goodness gracious. 80% and only 5% finish it. And I think we know that change is hard. And whenever uh, I was looking around at some New Year stuff, I saw this article in the U.S. News and World Report uh, written by a psychologist that was offering some helpful tips on how you can uh, go about your New Year's resolutions this year. So they were offering some helpful tips on how you can change uh, the way that you go about change this year. Number one, think small. Uh, so, you know, the irony is uh, you can totally change. Just don't get your hopes up, okay? That way, uh, when you fail, you don't cry yourself to sleep too bad. They had this uh, wonderful little excerpt they had to include. Think small. Find a goal that's simple. Like when I finish this meal, I'm going to wash my dish. Make a contract with yourself that that dish must be washed. No ifs, ands, or buts. Throughout the day, find simple challenges that you make happen. Friends, if you're at the place in life where you need to be reminded to wash a dish, come on in and talk. Let's chat, you know. If, that, if your ability to change, like if you're at that place, uh, let's chat. Number two and number three combined. Build self-trust by inventing challenges that you can accomplish. Number four, cultivate optimism. Focus on the positive, not the negative. Nice and easy, right? We will be sure to take that advice to the Kaligat next year to give to the women. And number five, which is the best, is uh, develop a critical self-awareness. Something we all want to develop, right? This is our culture's idea about change. And if you listen closely, you know, the irony is that this article is a perfect representation of why we don't experience any change whatsoever. And why what we really believe is people don't change. And one is because it assumes that you, act, you actually know what your true problem is. It assumes that when you survey your life and think about something to change, that you actually know what it is that needs to change. You know what the real issue is. But the problem with that is that we minimize our real problem all the time. We make it much simpler than it actually is. And so, you know, take uh, the, you know, the most common resolution. You know what? Losing weight. Somebody believes their life will be better if they lose weight. You know, and of course, to a degree it would be. But six weeks in, when they've crashed and burned and they're struggling with trying to keep it up, and they finally just give up, and they're frustrated with themselves, maybe in that moment, they have the opportunity to recognize that their problem actually runs a lot deeper. Maybe, they're, maybe they recognize that their desire to get into the gym isn't nearly as strong as the self-contempt and the self-hatred they feel every time they look in the mirror. It's not enough to overcome the feeling that they're a failure and a joke. And it's a lot easier to retreat on the couch than it is to go in the gym and do bicep curls. Are your problems really that simple that they can just be changed because you decide to make a few changes to your schedule? 
The other thing is that the article assumes that you actually know what the good life is. You know, our desire for change, does it not come from our desire just to be blessed and live the good life, to live a life of, you know, of blessing? But the problem with that is that we don't actually know what the good life is because we don't value the right things. You know, what do most resolutions come down to? When we think about change and decide to make changes, what is, you know, let's classify them in basic, three basic categories. You know, one is something financial, you know, kind of save more money. The other is kind of appearance-wise, you know, with, uh, you know, kind of lose some weight or just get healthier, make healthier decisions. You know, and then the third is like some version of productivity in your life that we want to grow in. You know, so essentially uh, become a, you know, sleeker, uh, more svelte, sexier version of yourself in the new year. And so, do we not fall as believers kind of into that same trap when we think about change? And for us to think about real life change, not surface stuff, but real life change, we have to recognize our blind spots. Because on the one hand, we profess to be people of the book, people that are devoted to God's word and the way that God says life should be and devoted to God's authority. But we really have to ask ourselves if we don't experience change is does your vision of the good life match God's vision of the good life? When was the last time you ever heard anybody say, you know what, this year, I resolved to grow in the fruit of the Spirit? When was the last time you heard somebody say, I resolved this year that I wanna, I wanna grow in patience and be a more patient person. I wanna grow in gentleness. I wanna practice more kindness. I want to exercise more self-control because these are the marks. This is the fruit of one who has been changed by Christ. Does your vision of the good life match God's vision of the good life? And the reason we don't hear these things is because, quite frankly, we don't believe that's the good life. We don't believe that practicing and engaging in these things will really offer life to us because, man, those are changes that require a whole new set of commitments a whole, new diff- a whole new level of self-examination and a different kind of focus. Life on God's terms is disruptive because it, doesn't, because it involves changes that we just don't naturally want to make. We value the sexier life, not the spiritual life. And yet if we fail to make the surface level sexier changes to life, then what makes us think that we have any hope of really experiencing any true spiritual change? So why is change so hard? Well, we overestimate our ability, we underestimate our problems, and we value the wrong things because our vision of the good life is way too small. Everything you use to measure your life is off and skewed. If you measure your life by your neighborhood, by the letters after your name, by your bank account, you are measuring your life according to a standard that falls far short of what you were intended for. We need a different measuring standard for our lives. The ones we decide fall far short. That's why we need an outside voice, an outside standard telling us what the good life should look like. That's why we need an outside voice that's telling us what's really off, what's really out of line, and what really needs to change. That's why we need the voice of the prophets one who calls out God's word to us. And so the challenge of today's passage is this. If you want to experience God's life-changing power in your life, you have to begin to embrace the disruption that it causes. And by embracing that disruption, I mean you have to be willing to be disrupted and you have to also be willing to disrupt. 
We will not experience change apart from embracing the disruption that God brings to us. In Amos's vision this morning, he sees a vision of a plumb line. A plumb line was a weight that was attached to a string, and they'd run it along a wall to measure whether or not that wall was vertical, if it was true. And as they ran along the wall, every section that was off, they would mark it and move on and then come back and destroy that part of the wall and then rebuild it according to uh, that plumb line. And in this passage, God says he's now going to hang this plumb line over his people. He's going to measure his people and whether or not they are in line. So what exactly is that plumb line that God uses, though? That plumb line to measure the condition of his people. Now, the plumb line is his word, his law, life the way that God has said that it should be. This is going to be the factor that determines whether Israel is upright or whether they will have to be broken down and destroyed. And the you know, vision says itself, the outcome is tragic. God says, I'm going to destroy all the shrines, all the sanctuaries, all the high places in the entire kingdom because there is nothing that is in line with how I've said it should be. I'm going to have to destroy all of it. And if uh, we make the mistake of thinking that God's judgment is just because he's an angry God in the Old Testament, we have to remember the purpose of the law and recognize what the plumb line is not. So when God measures his people according to the law and he hangs his law over Israel, this is more than him just trying to find some simple uh, rule breakers and then punish them. That was never the purpose of the law. If you go back in the Old Testament when God gives, um, or further back in the Old Testament, when God gives the law through Moses, what do we see? God would give a law and a series of laws, and then he would you know, end whatever section that was. He would always end those laws with the constant refrain, I am the Lord. I am Yahweh. This is true. I am true. It's not obey me because I'm God, because God doesn't deal that simply. He says, this is true. This is good. I am true. I am good. Do this. I am Yahweh. What's the effect of that? Well, the purpose was so that Israel would recognize and understand that the laws are more than just rules to follow. Because the law in and of itself was to order their lives because it was an actual expression of the character of God. And so when Israel engages in the law and says, uh, whenever they allow the law to shape and structure and order every aspect of their lives, it was in that submission that they actually came to understand and discover the character, the concerns, the nature, and the heart of God. So that means that if you don't obey the law, and if they rejected the law, it was more than just mere obedience dis- or disobedience. It was a rejection of God, which is why God says the consequence of you breaking the law isn't just me punishing you, it's me rejecting you. I am the God that wants to give you myself by giving you the good life. And Israel says, we don't want the good life because we don't want you. And that was Israel's situation because they had everything figured out. They were in the same situation that we can find ourselves in, where we think we know what the problem is, 
They thought they uh, had the ability to change it, and they thought they knew what the good life was. And you see it throughout Amos so far. So they have a problem because Judah and Israel have separated into two kingdoms. So instead of kind of focusing on the real problem of division and why that is, instead they say, well, we can't go to Jerusalem and offer sacrifices there the way we're supposed to, so we'll just set up altars all throughout the kingdom. Problem solved. And then since we're cut off from Jerusalem, we don't have a priesthood, so Jeroboam says, let's just make a priesthood to offer sacrifices on behalf of the people. Problem solved. And on top of that, they're in a season in Israel's history during the the book of Amos where they're really wealthy. And so this is the good life. Amos, why are you talking about change? We have everything covered. And through Amos, God is giving Israel the opportunity to recognize that they have measured their lives by all the wrong things. And he's giving them the opportunity to become the people that he wants them to be. He's giving them the opportunity to be a people that measure their lives according to his word, what he says is good, what he says is true, and to be a people led by his voice. But they don't want to. Because the things that Amos prophesies about are way too disruptive to the status quo that they have chosen to live by. Because to trust in Amos' words, it meant they had to change the way they worshipped. It meant they had to change the way they spent their money. It meant they had to change the way they viewed their neighbor, the way that they treated the poor. It meant they had to take a much longer uh, and closer examination of the heart and understand their true spiritual condition. But they don't want to. That's way too disruptive. I do not want to give up my life of comfort Uh, in the face of all of that uh, disruption. What a dangerous place to be. We have to ask ourselves the same question. You know, are you devoted to the life that God desires for you? You know, are you devoted to hanging the plumb line of how God said life should be over your life and be willing to see where it's off? And the way you answer that question is really a question of value. Because the way you answer that question is really going to be found out in the way you answer a deeper question, which is, do you actually believe that the way God wants your life to be is actually better than how you want it to be? And isn't that, you know, (laughs) therein lies the difficulty of change, you know? That's why it's so hard for us to change, because it costs so much. It's disruptive to the ways that we have established the good life to look and want it to look. And so as God comes to Israel, it says that Amos, uh, Amos is speaking words that Amaziah says that the land cannot handle. He is disrupting the whole kingdom and they do not like it. So how is it that we change? Well, first, we embrace that disruption where God is speaking to us and offering us that opportunity. But Amaziah in verses 10 through 13 gives us a perfect example of how we actually resist God's work in our lives, of how we resist change, of how we reject any sort of disruption, and how we invest all of our energy in keeping the status quo. Now, who is Amaziah? Well, he's most likely the high priest uh, at Bethel. You know, he's the high priest of this new priesthood. He's kind of a puppet prophet because he was placed there by Jeroboam. But he's a powerful man. He would have been a powerful man as the high priest. He would have had a lot to lose. He had a lot invested in this new system. And he did not want it to change. And so how does he respond to God's disruption? In verse 10, it says, uh, he, he writes to, in this correspondence, he writes to both the king and to Amos. 
And he says, Amos has conspired against the king. And then in verse 12, he says, you know, go to Judah and eat your bread there. All right, so he calls, uh, or that phrase, eat your bread there, is really a euphemism for, you know, Amos, go to Judah and make your money there. He's taking a shot at him, saying, excuse me, taking a shot at him and saying, you know, you're just a prophet for hire, and you'll say anything to make a buck. So essentially, he's saying you're a conspirator, and you just want to disrupt and cause problems. And then he also says, you're just in it for the money. What's Amaziah really doing? As he responds, well, he's discrediting the one speaking truth to him so that he can alleviate himself of his responsibility. How often do we try to do that same thing? How often do we try to discredit the words of another so that we don't have to face reality? You know, when our our spouse or a friend or a family member comes to us and addresses something that we've done wrong, what are we so quick to do? Offer a reason for why we did it. Or with our spouse and those that are the, the closest to us, you know, we say, well, I wouldn't have done that if you hadn't have done this. My imperfection is completely justified by your imperfection. You have to ask yourselves the question, is that the standard by which we would experience change? So if you want to experience change, ask yourself, are you willing to be disrupted by the truth in the first place? Maybe ask yourself the question, you know, uh, is there any room for anybody to say anything to you? Is there any room for anybody to be able to call you out? Is there any, is there any room in your life that you might be wrong? We cannot expect change when we treat the truth as a threat. And then secondly, in verse 12, Amaziah says another thing. He says, you know, go to Judah and prophesy there. And the implication that he's trying to impress upon uh, Amos is that why don't you go to Judah because everybody loved your message there. Because they hate us here, we hate them there. So why don't you go where you're not going to be causing any problems. You can go there. Since you're in it for the money, they'll pay you all sorts of money because you are selling what they want to buy. What's he doing? Well, Amaziah is negotiating a peace treaty. He's offering an alliance with Amos so that he can maintain the status quo. So he's saying, Amos, why don't you go do your thing over there and I'll continue to do my thing over here and we don't have to bother each other. We both win. If we think about our marriages, how easy is it for them to settle into just being a negotiated alliance where we have the terms of the agreement set Instead of pursuing a marriage that God delights in. And that can look at all sorts of different ways. Or we can say, you know, well, well, sweetie, we can talk about the finances and the kids. We can talk about all of those things, but I don't want to talk about my heart. I don't want to talk about our relationship. You can go to a counselor. You can go to a friend to talk about those things, but I don't want to have to deal with it. We can begin to set limits and bounds and set the terms of the agreement. We can say, you know, we can talk about all of these different things, but we're not going to talk about my money. We're talking about the way I spend my money or my time or how I spend my weekdays, my weeknights. All of these things are off limits and everything will be fine if you stay in your lane and they're out of bounds. We all do that to some degree, do we not? Because it's so much easier to protect what we want and negotiate kind of a a deal than it is to actually be disrupted by the type of marriage that God delights in one in which there's mutual submission, one in which there's honoring and respecting one another, and there's, so, there's sacrificial 
self-giving love towards one another. And that's why we negotiate, because we're really protecting what matters most to us. And that's why the plumb line is so disruptive. It's because it always exposes and asks us to give up what is most valuable to us. And our resist, you know, if you want control, you're just going to try and negotiate for more in your marriage. If you want more money and to spend it how you want, you're just going to try and negotiate some sort of agreement to be able to spend money how you want it. Whatever it is you want, we're going to try and negotiate how it is we want to, to use that and to get, negotiate the terms. And so when we do that, we're doing the same thing Amaziah does where, you know, he says at the very end, he's like, just so you know, Amos, this is the kingdom. This is the holy sanctuary. We say the same thing. This is my kingdom. This is, whole, this is holy sacred ground. Do not disrupt my kingdom and everything will be fine. And if we're unwilling to be disrupted in that, and we try to hold on to what we value is to be most precious, we're, we're living a life in which we're trying to hold on to something that we're going to lose in the end. And we're going to try, instead of actually receiving something better that God has for us, that is eternal and will never be taken away. And we will never experience that change that God has for us unless we're willing to actually sit and listen to his disruptive voice and trust that he has something better for us. And in Amos' response, we see that we also have to be willing to disrupt. What do I mean by that? Well, Amos is a man on the run. At this point, he's turned the kingdom upside down. He would have had wanted posters all over the kingdom. And so Amaziah comes to him and offers him the way out. Once you go to Judah... It's better for you. It's better for us. What does Amos do? Well, he doesn't do what we do, which sometimes we can retreat. He doubles down on what God has said should be. He continues to prophesy. He continues to disrupt because he says, and you know, in verse 15, he recognizes that above the way, above the way that he feels, above the way that he thinks things should go, he knows he's called according to a purpose. I used to be this, now I'm this, and this now determines my life. I was called to come and say it, so I'm going to be faithful. And he continues to disrupt, and he continues to prophesy in the face of those that would not want it. He embraces that discomfort. He embraces that disruption. Instead of being driven by his own self-preservation. And that is one of the hardest things we have to give up. Because if we're willing to lay that plumb line over our marriage, over our family, over our kids, and ask, God, what is it that's off? Well, are you willing to address those things whenever God reveals something that's off? Or would you rather protect the status quo out of that instinct for self-preservation? You know, are you willing for each of these areas of your life to be determined by what you know God has called them to be? And that's where we often settle for our relationships to be for far less than what they really are. Our marriages, you know, exist for me, or we just kind of have kids because we got married and we had kids and here they are. You know, we don't remember that all of those things, every arena of life is called and purposed for the kingdom because you are called and purposed for the kingdom. And that becomes our standard, and that becomes the very purpose by which we engage in those things. And again, sometimes we don't want to try and get those things in line with what God wants because it is costly, but because we fear the consequences of actually embracing the kingdom and its values and trying to get 
those things in line with it. You know, when you try and address wrong, we fear rejection, we can fear abandonment. We can do that in all sorts of ways. It's, we can uh, express that desire. Uh, instead, of va- you know, instead of embracing the kingdom and what we're called to be, we live out of self-preservation. And so, you know, life goes easier for me whenever I don't address issues with my husband. Because when I do, he tears me down. So whenever we get that resistance, do we shrink back? Or we say, you know, life goes easier for me whenever I let my wife feel like the boss and she's in control. Because if I don't, I get punished for it. And we say, you know, I, I fear rejection. And so I like to build relationships that never get past work, weather, and sports. Or I fear abandonment. And so I treat my, or I engage my children as a friend instead of as a parent. Or we say, you know, I hate conflict, I don't like drama, I'm afraid of conflict, and so I will apologize for anything and everything, even if I didn't do anything, just to make it go away. In these moments, we are allowing our self-preservation to be the purpose, more than God's purposes. And so we end up seeking the path of least resistance, which is the complete opposite direction of the path to change. If you want to live for God's kingdom, you have to learn to be willing to disrupt. You have to be willing to learn to have that conversation and say, well, I, I don't mean disrupt out of contempt. You know, you always do this. You always do that. You know, I told you, of course you did that. And we heap shame. What about disrupting for the sake of love to say, sweetie, it's time we had this conversation. It's time we finally talked about this. It's finally we talked about some of our past, finally talked about this issue in our lives, and we finally allow God to do something about it. I'm tired of sweeping it under the rug, and I want something better for us. That's disruptive for the sake of love. And in that moment, you become a gift to your spouse, your children, your family, and your, and your friends when you are willing to be the voice of the prophet, and you don't settle for anything less than what it is that God wants for you. In all these things, we have to embrace disruption. And so as we close, what does this have to do with Advent? Well, as we celebrate the coming of our Savior, we have to recognize that the incarnation of Jesus is not just simply the offering of a Savior. It's also the giving of the standard. It's a giving us a picture of the good life. We don't have a mysterious vision of a plumb line. We don't have to live by this long set of rules. When we want to know the good life, we can look and see Jesus because he is God's word in the flesh. Do you believe that Jesus is the perfect image of the good life? We're not just given a savior, we're offered a standard by which to measure everything. As you think about change in your life, how might you take that first step? Well, Jesus is no less present now than he was when he walked the earth because he gave us your spirit. His spirit is present in this room. His spirit lives within you and his spirit is constantly talking to you. Why? Because the role of the spirit is to convict and to disrupt you. And in that moment where we are convicted, we often kind of want to move away because we hate feeling that way. And yet that is the good stuff. That is where God is coming in and trying to talk to you. That's when that plumb line of your crucified Savior is hung over your life and it begins to expose which is off and what needs to change and what is hurting you and what falls far short of what God would have for you. 
Because the best version of you is the one that looks like Jesus. And so as you begin to think about your life this year, don't think of all the things that you'd like to change. Don't think about like all these things that I want to do this, 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 and this. Just stop and let God start the conversation. Just let him tell you what it is that you're convicted about. And we can, in that moment, God is simply telling you, let's just start with this. Let's just start by working on this. And in that moment, we have the opportunity to experience that disruptive power of change. And this is why true change, real change, gospel power change is not a product of reinvention. It is a product of repentance. Because whenever we actually are repent and we offer ourselves up in humble submission to the Savior, you're actually allowing him to change you. It's in that moment where he starts the conversation and you entrust yourself to the one who actually has the power to change you, the one that actually knows what truly needs to change, and the one who is the living, breathing, good life himself. And it's in repentance that we allow him to disrupt us and to make us into something new. None of this is easy. None of this, none of this comes easy, but I would close with this. I've had the opportunity to hear a few people talk about their lives over these last few weeks and months and days and what God is doing in their life. And I've heard people talk about some new changes that they've begun to make, and they finally began to answer some of that convicting, disruptive, uh, that voice of God, and they began to answer it. And you know what? They talk completely differently than they used to. They have a whole new security and a whole new, um, a whole new outlook on life that they never had and then you have other people that I've talked to that as a result of the marriage class, they finally began to have some conversations they needed to have. They finally were willing to say, it's time to talk about this. And they embraced that disruption and they're on a different track than they were the before. I talked to another person that had a hard road and they chose to allow God to begin to say, I want to deal with this. And they finally let him. And in all of these situations, uh, hearing them talk, Hearing them describe their situation, they talk with more freedom, more passion, and more joy, and more peace than anybody else I talk to. This version of them that they allowed God to change them into was far better than anything that they could have invented on their own. And it was disruptive, and it was hard, but yet they are completely new. What good things might lie on the other side of that disruption? And it's a powerful thing to want the same thing that God wants. And we had an application to go to India of one who's disrupted and wanting that change. And here's what they wrote. I long to be motivated more to live a radical life that reflects the heart of God. I want to have a heart for the poor. I want to see what the rest of the world actually looks like. I want to join the ministry of the G brothers in Smriti. I want to come alongside them. I want to experience the joy and heartache of Frontline's ministry. I want to do missions the right way. I want to experience not sanctified travel, but missions as God would have me. I want to let our brothers and sisters across the world know that we care and love them so that Christ might be glorified. I want the Holy Spirit to change my heart. It is a powerful thing, and it is a life-changing thing to want the same thing that God wants. Do you want it? And are you willing to embrace that disruption? Let's pray. Jesus, we ask that you would help us be disrupted we ask that you'd help us have the strength to, to face it, not to run away and run the opposite direction, but to finally let go of control, let go of our need, let go of our fear, 
and entrust that you are actually the good shepherd that you say you are. You are the good life and forgive us for the ways in which we don't see it and the ways that we don't want to be like you. And we ask by your spirit, you would help us to become more and more into your image. We ask all this in Christ's precious name. Amen.